0: Hi, this is Gene Quinn of IP Watchdog, and you're listening to IP Fridays.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in house or private practice, novice or expert, we will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks. Patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more.
2: Welcome to episode 73 of IP Fridays. Today I'm very excited to have a guest back on the show, Gene Quinn, the IP Watchdog, um, creator of the website ipwatchdog.com. And he also happens to be a real expert in software patents. Then Ken also reports on the latest trademark issues with cannabis trademarks in California. And before we jump into this, um, I have a brand new finding from the European Patent Office. They recently, in the beginning of February, issued a new decision G1 of 15 of the Enlarged Boards of Appeal this decision was about partial priorities and the EPO found the Enlarged Board of Appeal found that under the EPC entitlement to partial priority may not be refused for a claim encompassing alternative subject matter by virtue of one or more generic expressions or otherwise uh, generic OR claims, provided that said alternative subject matter has been disclosed for the first time directly or at least implicitly unambiguously and in an enabling manner in the priority document. And they also found that no other substantive conditions or limitations apply to this respect. So what that means is if you have a claim like a red, red or blue car, and the priority document only discloses, uh, discloses the red car, then the claim um, with regard to the one alternative, the red car, can uh, basically be entitled to the partial priority of the red car and the blue car gets the priority of the filing date of the present application. So, one claim can have different priorities. So, Ken, let us hear about marijuana trademarks in California
1: ralph the rise of medical cannabis and cannabis infused products in states such as california is perched to become big business estimated at six point four billion dollars companies are coming up with unique trademarks such as highland pantry Madame munchie and sweet relief along with unique packaging yet filing a trademark application to federally register these products will be met with a refusal to register, since the federal government still deems marijuana to be illegal and will not grant federal trademark protection. If all goes according to plan, however, state trademarks and service marks for cannabis goods and services will be available under California law if California Assembly Bill 64 is enacted into law. The author of the bill, Assemblyman Rob Bonta, has said that cannabis businesses are like other businesses, lawful and regulated. They should be able to protect their intellectual property." The desire for protection stems from the need to protect uniquely designed branding and help to secure investments from investors as new companies join the emerging market. While the bill would make it easier to file for trademarks and service marks in California for these types of goods and services, the bill also contains a provision that would limit the use of promoting the brands on billboards located near california freeways that is drawing the support of the california police chiefs association on the federal level companies can still try to file trademark and service mark applications for federally lawful goods and services as long as they do not specifically contain marijuana as an example an application to register a mark used in connection with a website which describes the medical uses of cannabis, could be allowed to register, as long as it is not refused on any other typical grounds such as likelihood of confusion or descriptiveness, for example. Also, if a company is selling accessories such as rechargeable batteries for vaping pipes, this too would not fall astray of the federal block on cannabis trademarks. Acceptable services, for example, would be business consultation services in the medical marijuana industry. Other states in the United States have already permitted state trademarks and service marks for cannabis and cannabis-infused products. To date, those states are Colorado and Washington State. For IP Fridays,
2: I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. And now let's jump into the interview with Gene Quinn, the IP Watchdog. I'm very excited to be joined by Gene Quinn today. If you don't know who Gene is, Gene is not only patent attorney with Wiedermann & Malek, but more importantly, he is founder and creator of IP Watchdog, an enormously famous website in the IP community with about 100,000 visitors each month. Unbelievable. Thanks for being on the show, Gene.
0: Thanks, Wolf. Thank you. And I got to tell you, you know, um, we're up to, believe it or not, almost 250,000 visitors a month now.
2: Wow. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) You know, it's been a long,
0: strange journey and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. But um, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you.
2: And uh, as many people might know, and some not, um, you are an absolute expert in uh, uh, patent eligibility, but also in software and patenting software. So today we want to focus on these topics. um, And there have been some recent decisions about patent eligibility and some things have changed. Uh, Can you summarize the most important changes for our listeners?
0: Yeah, you know, if we had this conversation a year ago, it would be a very different conversation. Um, and it, straight up through until about the middle of May of 2016, it would have been a doom and gloom kind of conversation where there wasn't a whole lot of reason to be optimistic if you were a patent owner or if you were an inventor who had software-related innovation. But then in about the middle of May 2016, that's when the uh, Enfish versus Microsoft case was decided by the federal circuit. And that started a, 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 sh- a at least a string of cases over the summer and into the fall, where the federal circuit did find that certain software claims were in fact patent eligible. And that was big news because up until then, there had only been one case, it had been DDR Holdings that had found software Patent eligible, and it it was something like it it had gotten to the point where it was is kind of absurd. It was like forty cases where there was claims were ineligible, and only one case where there were claims that were eligible. Uh, So people were were thinking, "What's the point?" uh, I mean, software. The courts may not want to say that it's not patentable, but it seems like we have a de facto rule, uh, and. I and others were holding out hope simply because we knew that there were some cases in the pipeline where there were real good technologies, well-described, and if those cases went ineligible, then it was going to be a a different story. Now, thankfully, uh, some of them did not, so now we started to get to understand a little bit better about what it is that needs to go into these applications in order to give the clients the best opportunity um and truthfully Ralph you know if the people who've been doing things on the high end and have been doing it uh the way that you for lack of a better way let's just say the right way and and maybe we can circle back to what i mean by that in a minute but if you had been doing it the right way all along i think you're in pretty you were in pretty good shape uh based on these string of rulings that have come out Uh, Now, the unfortunate part is, is a lot of times you can't do it the right way simply because of restrictions placed on you by the client. Um, And it's not that the client is saying, I want you to do it the wrong way. It's they don't have the money in order to do the project properly. Um, So one of the big problems with software patents had become uh, everybody felt competent to do them. Because after all, the best way to describe a software innovation is as a method and everybody can write method claims. The problem with that is, is you're not putting enough description of the technology and the specification unless you're a computer engineer or you know about writing code or you have some level of sophistication or you're willing to learn. So uh, there's no such thing as a cheap software patent. There probably never should have been anything as such as a cheap software patent. But if you have a real innovation, something that is unique, um, that you solved a real problem, like any innovation, you can get software protection if you describe it properly. So that's sort of in a nutshell. And I don't know how deep you want to might get into some of these holdings.
2: Do you want to go in uh, a little bit? I w- I want to go a little bit deeper, but maybe um, a lot of our listeners are more like trademark or copyright professionals, so maybe we give them a little background what has significantly changed in the landscape of software patenting. Um, a while ago, there was a decision, the Alice decision, um, and that changed a whole lot. And the patent office uh, probably overreacted or reacted very strongly about this. Uh, and they issued memos to the examiners to change their practice and all these kinds of things. Um, and maybe you can if, before we talk about like what the right way is and how to uh, describe software inventions in patent applications maybe we can briefly talk about ellis and what like the mayo ellis test or how it is called and and these kinds of developments like that started all the um craziness basically
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean probably the, the the way to start is to go all the way back to Bilsky and. um what happened in Bilski was the federal circuit came out with what they called the machine or transformation test. And uh, the machine component was dealing with software. And if your software was tethered to a machine, performed on a machine, and a machine was an integral part, then it c- could be patent eligible. And the Supreme Court said in the Bilski decision that that's not the only test, but the machine or transformation test was an important consideration. So what happened really in real life was the Patent Office kind of deferred to the Machiner Transformation Test as a safe harbor. Um, And then Alice took another look at some of these things, and then the Machiner Transformation Test goes away. And in the interim was the Mayo decision where the Supreme Court decided to kind of, what I think is fair to say, interject some idea of, is this new enough to overcome a 101 rejection? Is it new enough to be patent eligible? Which is a new way of looking at 101. The newness had always come under 102 and anticipation novelty. So they come out with the Mayo slash Alice framework, which starts with the statute and says, is this one of the four enumerated categories of innovation? Is it a machine? Is it a process? Is it an article manufacturer? Is it a compound? If it's one of those things, then the statute would say it's patent eligible. The Supreme Court would say, not so fast, go to the next question. The next question is, are you trying to protect something that is classified as a judicial exception? Now, so far, there's only three of them. There's abstract ideas, laws of nature, and natural phenomenon. And when we talk about software, we're talking about abstract ideas. So is your software claim covering an abstract idea or relating to an abstract idea? If yes, then next question. If no, then it's patent eligible. Now in NFISH and a couple other cases recently, the Federal Circuit found that the claims did not even relate to an abstract idea, uh, which was big news. So, So it's possible that a software patent claim might not even relate to an abstract idea and in ENFISH, it dealt with database, uh, database-related innovation. Um, now, the final question, if your claim does relate to an abstract idea, then are you merely trying to protect the abstract idea or is there, quote-unquote, significantly more in the claim such that you're not just covering the abstract idea, a disembodied abstract idea? Now, the problem with this test has been two, two primary problems. One, we ha- the Supreme Court hasn't defined, and neither is the federal circuit, what is an abstract idea. You know, So we have this abstract idea test with no definition for what is an abstract idea, which then lets the decision maker decide what is and what is not an abstract idea so you don't get repeatable uh, outcomes. And then the second part is, there's no definition for what is significantly more. Um, what is enough to be significantly more is sort of, again, in the eye of the beholder, in the eye of the decision maker. So what this has done is it led people who um, don't like software patent to say you, this is an abstract idea and it's not significantly more without a whole lot of concrete, rigorous analysis, in my opinion. It is also on the other side. Led people who like these things to be patent eligible to say it's either not an abstract idea or, of course, it adds significantly more. So those who have been in the industry for a long time might recall that something called the Freeman-Walter Abelly test, um, which you know was back uh, over a generation ago, and that test ultimately crashed under its own weight simply because. It allowed the decision maker to do whatever they wanted and it wasn't intellectually rigorous. And we're back in the same exact place just with a different test. And that's sort of the big problem with the Alice Mayo framework, in, in my opinion. Um, and I think we, it, what has to happen is we have to have uh, abstract, what is an abstract idea defined? Because just a couple weeks ago, The Patent Trial and Appeal Board at the patent office decided that an MRI machine is abstract and not patent eligible because the component that contributed novelty to the MRI machine was uh, software related. But the claim clearly was written to cover an MRI machine. So I think what we see is the Alice test swallows patent law whole Um, And in that case, the question should have been whether or not the MRI machine and the software component was described well enough, which is a description issue, not a patent eligibility issue.
2: Right. And uh, a lot of uh, European attorneys, um, they th- their first thought Alice brings back the, or brings the European way of thinking about inventions, you know, the technicity and the, the inventions have to be technical or technical aspects. But that's, uh, if I hear you right, that's not the case at all. I mean, there, there still can be um, patent eligible subject matter not being, uh, not having any technical nature, basically, in the European sense, right?
0: Well, you know... That's a question that I think is still really open-ended. I personally would love to see the US go from where we are now to the European standard. Um, and I'm not gonna, I don't wanna say that I think the European standard is the best standard. I, I think in some ways it can be restrictive, but I think it's it's objective, I think. Certainly f- objective compared to what we have. What we have in the US is completely subjective. Um, and I also think that whether or not you're having something that looks like the European standard in the U.S. depends on the judge. I think if you read the Enfish decision, uh, that panel, and maybe particularly Judge Hughes, who wrote that decision, would would gravitate more towards the European interpretation. Um, is there a technological improvement? And uh, and to me, that makes sense, right? Because if there's an Technological improvement—that's an innovation—and those are the types of things that we've always wanted to get allow patents on better, stronger, faster, that sort of thing. Um, But there is a variety of different interpretations, I think. And in U.S. law, there's no, there's nothing forcing the European standards on judges. So it's judges coming to that, I think, on their own. And I think we would do really well to to have some presidential decisions, maybe an en decision from the federal circuit, um, or maybe even a statutory change that starts to weave in some more objectivity.
2: Mm, okay. Um, so when, in the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned that, uh, if you had done it the right way in the past, you are, um, already, uh, basically safe. Um, what, what do you think is the right way? And is that still the same right way as, as like two years ago or something?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think fundamentally it is. I think that, you know, what you what you want to do is you have to, one, know what the innovation is, obviously. Which sounds silly, but in the software space, I, I wonder sometimes whether people actually spend enough time thinking about what they've innovated. So merely, in other words, merely doing something using a computer is not enough. You have to you have to be able to say what's innovative um, and two, you have to then go and, and be able to describe it. Now, in the U.S., what what happened was we kind of um, and maybe this is not unique to U.S. practice. It's probably all patent attorneys everywhere this way. We're are reactionary. So, for example, when KSR regarding obviousness gets decided, um, the way that patent applications started to be written in the U.S. changed. Um, A lot less of the prior art was discussed and you wouldn't explain the problems and you really wouldn't try and explain what was terribly unique or why it was special, which just always struck me as odd. I mean, I get why that change occurred. Um, because anything you do say in an application in the U.S. is used against you. And the irony is, if you do a really good job of describing what your invention is, you can actually make it seem like it's the next logical step. And therefore, the examiner will give you an obviousness rejection, which I think is absurd. And I don't know that that's done anywhere other than the U.S., um, at least to the, that extent. Um, so there was... It was reactionary, so a lot less started going into these applications. And as a lot less started going into the applications, then you started seeing things where you started reading them, and at the end, you'd get to the end, and it's like I, I have no idea what's unique here. I don't know what the improvement is. I don't know why they think it's it's interesting. And those types of applications in today's climate don't have a ch- don't have a chance, in my opinion. You have to really articulate the advantage. What is the innovation? What is the advantage? So if you wrote this the way I always try and explain it in a pithy way is if you wrote this pat, if you write patents the way that your grandfather wrote them, thick with technology and actually describe the invention, you're going to be okay.
2: Mm, okay. Um. You have uh, recently written a nice guide, um, Guide to Software Patent Eligibility at the Federal Circuit. Um, That was a post, I think, in November on your website, IP Watchdog. And uh, it was a lot, uh, shared a lot and liked a lot. So (laughs) it was obviously quite popular. Um, Can you summarize uh, what's in that article that you didn't already mention, of course, for our listeners?
0: Well, I think fundamentally what you have to do whenever you are looking at trying to protect something that's software related is is you have to look at your project from a couple of different angles. And I think a lot of times innovators look at it from only one angle. You gotta look at it obviously from the user perspective, but you can't only describe what's going on from the user perspective. Because when you describe it from the user perspective only, it doesn't seem like it's all that special, you know? It's do this, click here, move there, insert this information there. You have to describe it from the computer's perspective. What is the computer doing with all of this information? How are they storing it? How are they manipulating it? What are the calculations? And what of all of that is, is unique, different, not being done? Is there some kind of unique compression, uh, can you store more with less, is it faster, have you streamlined it? And focus on those things that are obviously most unique. And then you also have to spend time describing the overall architecture of the system. All the pieces and parts that are tangible that you can actually pick up and hold that are gonna be used in order to bring the functionality into fruition. So I always encourage people to look at it from three different angles, the user perspective, the computer perspective, and then the system architecture. So that I think is, is critically important. And then now in the, you know, the end era and Macro, which was the uh, lip syncing case, uh, which is a slightly different case analysis. It's all about articulating the improvement how is this an improvement? Because if it is not an improvement and that doesn't read through in what you've written, I think you're going to have a hard time getting a patent. But if what you have come up with really is an improvement, and you can explain that from a variety of different perspectives, and it's written for that person of skill in the art, and I can't stress that enough, I always tell people that if if a if a English major can understand your software patent, you have failed because the English major is not the person of skill in the art, you know? And I'm not saying hide the invention. I'm saying describe it so that the relevant person can understand it. Because I think we got into this space in America, at least, where we tried to dumb down the description so anybody could understand it. And that really then makes it, void of the technical description that's necessary in order to highlight the improvement that is going to win the day?
2: Mm, um in, in my personal experience, sometimes the, the examiners, of course, they are very specialized in their field and they will understand the description even if it's high level. Um, I'm pretty confident. But sometimes the judges, they don't have the technical background and then... My feeling is sometimes I like to dumb down the description so the, the judges who don't have the background will understand it even without experts and, you know, a jury and so on and so on.
0: Yeah, I and I, I agree. I understand what you're saying there. And I think that, you know, the the, the patent has multiple different parts, multiple different sections. And, and I think that, you know, there's a place to be. Describing the invention and in lay terms so that people can understand what it is, what it does and why it's important. But then I think there's, there's got to be other places in that where you really have the roll up your sleeves and there is that technological description in there. Um, so I, and that's one of the reasons why, again, you know, go back to what I was saying is there's no such thing I, as a cheap software patent. Right. Because, you know, these patents get used for all kinds of different purposes and it does nobody any good if if the person who might be interested in buying it or licensing can't understand it. You know, right. the, the people making those decisions are business people. The judges are in English majors and history majors. They If they can't understand what it does and why it's important, you you got an uphill battle. But by the same token, you have to make sure you have the technological description in there so that it has... An innovative embodiment.
2: Right, right. So, for example, in the beginning of the summary of the invention, you can describe it in more lay terms, and then once you get later into the description, you can uh, use more and more complicated language and more, you know, the the language of the skilled person, basically. Right.
0: That's right. You know, and the other thing, while, while we're thinking about it here is, you know, I look at a lot of a lot of these applications, and maybe. It's not this way today, but we got into the space where a lot of software applications they would have flowcharts, and calling them flowcharts is kind of uh, you know incorrect. They were flow lines, you know. It was a line, and that was it. You know, if, if your flowchart in your application is a line, and that's the only flowchart you have in your application, <laughs> you got a problem. <laughs> you because know, it it, if it's if you if what you're doing is A to B to C, then D output, you got nothing you got nothing. Mm, right. It has to be a complex process.
2: Yes, I agree. Um, before we, we recorded this interview, you mentioned that some people in the field of intellectual property would like to see a statutory reform. Um, can you explain the positions in this discussion?
0: Yeah, you know, there's increasingly, I'm hearing more and more people talk about that there needs to be reform to one-on-one or whether you leave one-on-one alone, maybe you change the definitions to specifically say that software is patent eligible. Uh, and then on the biotech side, there's other people that want to include, you know, genetic related innovations as well. But um, the the thing that makes it complicated is because is if you do that, then the other side, who, and there's people out there who would want to, Software for not to be patent eligible. They're gonna show up in force and then you're gonna have a real battle about what the statute becomes. Um, so there's a lot of folks who aren't interested in making some subtle changes to 101, uh, but they haven't yet made a move because they're having a hard time coming to the consensus as to exactly what that change would be and i think even more so they're fearful of when they go to make that move what that could ultimately wind up meaning in terms of where it goes because there's a chance then when they open up 101 congress could say software is not patent eligible now i don't think they'll do that but it's it is a it is a risk but um if things like an mri machine are going to remain patent ineligible that changes the risk calculation. And you're gonna see I think more people have to push to get some kind of legislative reform here. Because the truth of the matter is, probably 60% or more of innovation today has some software component to it. So if having a software component to a tangible machine is gonna make the machine itself patent ineligible, there has to be a fix. Now the question becomes, how can you do that in a way that the Supreme Court will actually follow the law? Because famously in the US, the Supreme Court um, doesn't always follow the law. And it, patent law is not the only case where that happens. They, you know, they've done it in a, a number of high profile issues uh, over the years, re- including very recently. Uh, and they seem to be in love with these judicial exceptions which are not in the statute. So even if you change the statute, there's some people who think that the judicial exceptions will continue to apply. So you may have to, if you change the law, may have to specifically um, enact a statute to say no more judicial exceptions.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Difficult. (laughs) Or
0: or maybe what you do is maybe you have to define statutorily what is an abstract idea, or or maybe, maybe we need to statutorily adopt something you know, much closer to the way Europe does it,
2: right? About well, what that that will be difficult. I mean, in, in you see the difficulty in Europe is uh, what is technical and what is not technical. <laughs> so um, there is no definition, and it's a case by case thing, and sometimes. The, the Boards of Appeal of the European Patent Office say, okay, this is technical, and sometimes they say, this is not technical. So I, I think that will be the same thing with abs- what is abstract and what is not abstract. <laughs>
0: so- no, no, I, s- I suppose that that's correct. But I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, There's cases over here in the US where, uh, in, in Europe, you could get a patent on a graphical user interface. And you can also get a patent on a graphical user interface in the US um but now if that graphical user interface deals with any kind of financial um uh, systems let's say um all of a sudden that is somehow transformed in the US and in the i in the, in the mind of the the patent trial and appeal board from something that has a technical application and is a technical innovation into something that is not technical mm-hmm. and um And the reason is, is because you cannot bring a covered business method challenge against something that is a technological innovation in the Mm. U.S. Mm. Um, So in Europe, you guys treat graphic user interfaces as technological. And in the U.S., the patent trial and appeal board does not. Um, So we would go a long way to even embrace the uncertainty (laughs) that is in Europe. I mean, that would improve the US system a lot.
2: (laughs) Okay, I see. (laughs) Um, That has been a really nice interview. Um, Before we um, wrap it up, I want to mention that um, your website, IP Watchdog, um, has a real nice event calendar, um, listing all the events, uh, in the IP world, like trademark events, patent events, conferences, uh, copyright things and so on. And, uh, people actually are free to enter their events, right?
0: Yeah, you, you can. And, you know, I started this and it, I, I, I wish people would use it more. And this is, you know, selfish because you, you can enter your event for free. So. There, obviously, if you're doing it for free, I'm not making any money money on it. So, But one of the things I think that goes on in the IP community is there's no central event calendar. So what you see a lot of times is events that are scheduled against other events. Um, so I wanted to create this and I keep trying to get people to use it to try and have this, a centralized place where people can list events and then you can see what's going on when you might be trying to both figure out what events you're going to attend, and maybe if you're scheduling an event, and um, one of the things too about those is the the mo- n- most re- the the next five events that are coming up also go out every morning in our newsletter. So in um, our newsletter, you know, it's pr- pretty well read. So um, it's not just the events are are static online it's they are actually pushed out to people so i would encourage folks to take a look at that
2: yeah great yeah sounds good um if people have questions about patent eligibility or software patents how can they reach you
0: um the best way is if you go to ipwatchdog.com right up at the top um there's a contact link you can contact there and send a message uh you can also find me on linkedin those are the two best ways to get in touch Great. Uh, Gene, thanks for being on the show. No problem, Ralph. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.
1: That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at IPFridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to IPFridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.